Pastor Henry is away, and he's asked me to bring the word to us this morning. Thank you, Gary, for that uh, little comment. It just uh, kind of lightens me up a little bit. So, um, The state of your soul this morning, that's what we're going to be looking at. I took my truck in to have the oil changed a while back. The oil life sign had come on, and, I, and it said that I only had 18% oil life left. You've probably all seen that in your cars. Who knew that oil had life in it, right? Or it could die. But it does wear out and become ineffective. And I hadn't been paying attention to it, and I usually don't let it get that low. But driving back and forth to Darien, every day had taken its toll. It seemed that it wasn't that long ago that I had changed it, so I brought it in and I had them change the oil and rotate the tires. That's what I normally do. Change the oil and rotate the tires. And after I paid the bill with my credit card, which was $97, I noticed a charge for $43 for miscellaneous supplies. And I thought to myself, my, Miscellaneous supplies sure have gotten expensive. And so I guess I'm good for a while. It'll get me through the winter, and I won't have to think about it until early spring. And I'll try to pay more attention to the life of my oil and not let it go so long between changes. Now, when my kids were young and they started driving, and owning cars, I always taught them to take care of three things. Check the oil, right? Check the oil. You probably have heard this before from your parents. Check the oil, make sure there's water in the radiator, and that you have air in the tires. Three things. And if you do those three things, I told them that your car should last for quite some time. Well, this experience with my oil has some parallels to our spiritual lives. Sometimes we can get preoccupied with life and it can wear us down. Perhaps we may have become jaded or cynical over the months and the years and our lives lack freshness, a vibrancy, a passion for the things of God. Complacency may have set in and we sense, if we're honest with ourselves, a leanness to our souls. So this morning, we're going to take a look at the condition of our souls. We're gonna look under the hood, check the oil, see if you got enough water in the radiator and make sure you have air in the tires. It may be a little uncomfortable, but it will be beneficial because sometimes a little self-examination is needed at times. So this morning, Uh, I'm going to be going over quite a few verses of Scripture, and I will repeat them. And rather than us spending all this time looking up them, I would like it if you would just kind of follow along, write the verses down that we're going to be looking at, and then either later today or during the week sometime, take take out that list and go through those verses again, and perhaps the Holy Spirit will bring to recollection some of the things that we will be talking about this morning. Scripture teaches that we have a three-part existence as the people of God. 
that there are three elements to our being. It teaches that there exists a body, a soul, and a spirit in the believer. We read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, a beautiful doxology of Paul to the people of Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you notice what Paul wants to be kept blameless? Our spirit, our soul, and our body. Set apart for God. So the believer possesses a triune nature, a spirit, a soul, and a body. And in this, we see that the believer mirrors the triune nature of God. We can see this threefold aspect of our lives, again, implied in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intents of the heart. This morning, let's examine these three parts that make up the believer's existence, and we'll start with the, what is generally thought of as the lowest, and then we'll proceed to the highest part, the body, which is rather obvious, right? We exist in a body. The body is that which we see of each other, our hands, our feet, our hair, our eyes, all of these things make up our body. The body is the container that houses our souls and our spirits. It's the body where we see the impulses of our souls and our spirits play out, the action part. And now some would say this is the lowest part of the three because it's even the animal world uh, possesses bodies. Now these bodies that we possess, we know they won't last forever because the effects of sin in us and around us cause it to age, to become frail, and eventually to die and cease existence. But we as believers will be getting a new body. Hallelujah. Praise God for that. One that's fit for eternity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that great chapter where Paul discusses the, re the resurrection of our Lord Jesus and the benefits to us as believers, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 42 through 44, we read these words. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, and it is raised in power. It is a sown a natural body, and it is raised a spiritual body. And if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. This is something that we have to look forward to. A new body. The second element of our existence is our souls. Scholars such as C.I. Schofield, who has um, a Schofield Bible, tell us that the soul has three components to it as well. 
The soul is that part of us made up of our minds, our emotions, and our will. Put another way, the soul is the, is the seat of our thoughts, our affections, and our choices that we make. Now, every good sermon has a little bit of Greek in it, right? So we're told, right? If, you, if it's a good sermon, it's going to have a little bit of Greek. Well, this one's no different. There's a very little bit of Greek in here. So the New Testament Greek word for soul is suke, suke. And in the Old Testament, you didn't know you were going to get a little Hebrew this morning also, the Old Testament word is nephish. And both of these words basically mean the same thing and are translated to our English word soul. In Strong's Concordance, they give us a definition. He says, the seat, the soul is the seat of the feelings, desires, affections, and aversions. The soul as an essence which differs from the body and is not dissolved by death. Now, the soul is often associated with and combined with the word heart, as in the first commandment. Mark chapter 12, verse 30. Mark 12, 30 says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. Now we'll examine our souls a little bit more in depth shortly. The third element of our existence is the spirit. The spirit, the pneuma. It's from what we get the word pneumatics, using air to move things. This word is used to describe predominantly both the human spirit, pneuma, and the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Now in our Bibles, when the word spirit is capitalized, it refers to the Holy Spirit. That's how we can tell the difference. The editors help us in understanding that by capitalizing the S of the word spirit. And when it's not capitalized, it refers to our, our spirit or another spirit like angels or evil spirits. One of the definitions in Strong's Concordance is the spirit is the vital principle by which the body is animated the rational spirit, the power by which the human being feels, thinks, and decides. Now, some of you may ask, what is the difference between the spirit and the soul in a person? The difference seems to be that the spirit and the soul, or the, the difference between the spirit and the soul of a person seems to be it, the spirit is that which knows and is capable of God consciousness and communication with God. Let me repeat that. The spirit in us seems to be that which knows and is capable of God consciousness and communication with God. Simply put, it's the part in our being that connects with God, with our Father. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Verse 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11 says, For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. 
We read also in Proverbs 20, verse 27, the spirit of a man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the inner depths of the heart. So the spirit in us, again, seems to be that which connects with God. God invades us with the person of his Holy Spirit, and that enables our spirits to commune with him and to understand the things of God. It is my understanding that this is the part that is regenerated with the second birth, the new birth, when we're born again. When we're born again, God doesn't immediately give us a new body. He doesn't change our souls completely and immediately. What we, um, but he does impart to our born-again spirits the ability to know him and to respond to his spirit's leadings and promptings. Jesus said in John chapter 3, starting in verse 5, when he was speaking with Nicodemus, he says to Nicodemus in John 3, 5, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, capital S, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit, capital S, is Spirit, small s. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11 through 14, 1 Corinthians 1, 11 starts with, For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but that which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So our spirits are that which connect with God. Let's examine our souls a little bit more and the three parts, the mind, the emotion, and the wills that make up our souls, starting with our minds. And this is probably, in my mind, the most important part of our souls, our minds. It's the mind and what occupies the mind that's crucial. What we think about. What does our mind go to when we're not dealing with the immediate issue that surrounds us? What is our thought life occupied with? We have, at times, events and issues that we contend with every day, but there are other things that we think about. Have we learned the skill of controlling our thought life? Have we learned the skill of controlling our thought life? Taking thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Verses 4 and 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. This is a verse that I have employed in my walk with Christ. 
verse 5 particularly, but we'll start in verse 4 of 2 Corinthians chapter 10. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Sometimes I think things that are not good, as well as all of you have also. And when I realize that, I say, Lord, I want to bring that thought into captivity to obedience to you. That's how I, I use this verse. It's very, been very helpful for me. Have you ever said to yourself, where did that thought come from? There are certain thoughts that should raise flags in our minds. And those that raise flags in our minds should be denied, more than likely, especially if they're an, an unhealthy thought. The battle in our souls starts in the minds, and again, this is perhaps the most important arena of our lives to control. Don't give certain thoughts the time of day to affect us, because all actions begin with thoughts. So this in our minds is ground zero in our struggle with denying self and exercising self-control. So many thoughts are untrue. There are lies that the devil is trying to get us to believe, such as, you're not good enough, or you will never amount to much, or it's only a small, insignificant sin, no big deal, right? I really need this. I really need this, another thought. Or perhaps you've had this one. My life would be so much better if only. If only. You finish the sentence. We need to deny those negative thoughts that come into our minds. The mind can get lazy and dull over time. Or the mind, your mind, can grow. Your intellect can increase. How is it? How is your mind growing? Is it growing and increasing in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus? In Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, we read these words. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above not on things on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Set your mind on things above. You have ever heard it said that, oh, some of you believers are too heavenly minded, you're no earthly good? Have you ever heard that saying? I would say it would be better if you were too heavenly minded and no earthly good, perhaps. So, our minds need to be set on things above. There's other things. There's a beautiful list in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. A beautiful list on things to ponder and think about. Whatsoever things are, remember? Whatsoever things are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, 
Those are the kinds of things that occupy or should occupy our, our minds. So what about our emotions? We're made up of mind, emotion, and will. What about our emotions? Little psychology here this morning. As early as 4th century BC, a man named Aristotle attempted to identify the exact number of core emotions, and they were described as Aristotle's list of emotion. The philosopher proposed 14 distinct emotions. Fear, confidence, anger. Friendship, calm, enmity. Shame, shamelessness, pity, kindness, envy, indignation, emulation, and contempt. 14. I don't even know what emulation means. I don't know about you guys, but... More recent prominent theories of emotions have scaled that number down to six because they feel that a lot of these other ones that could are potential emotions come from these six core emotions. But you know what they don't mention? They don't mention shame. They don't mention envy. They don't mention jealousy or hatred. And I thought, how convenient is that? that the people who are counseling the youth, the adults, and whatever, eliminate those emotions from dealing with them. I think one of the greatest problems in our culture is that the emotion of shame is not experienced. Shame, shame on you, right? Ooh, that hurts. Don't tell me shame on me, you know? Emotions are a hard thing to manage at times. They can rule so much of our lives. Have you ever heard this expression? Don't let your emotions get the best of you, right? They can. There's positive emotions and there's negative emotions. And when something or situation affects us in a negative way and we turn to anger, the outcome is rarely good. But other emotions like happiness and joy, calm, peacefulness, Those are positive emotions. And emotions can lead desires, and sometimes those desires may not be healthy or righteous. But we as believers have the ability to control our emotions. We can refuse the anger that wells up inside of us, and instead of anger, there can be patience. Instead of sadness, there can be joy. Instead of apathy, There's love and compassion. We're instructed in Colossians chapter 3, verse 15. Colossians 3, 15, Paul says, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts to that which you also were called in one body and be thankful. The last element of our souls is our wills. Our will is made up of our desires and choices. It's what we want. It works in conjunction with our minds and our emotions. And there are good and bad desires, just as there are good and bad emotions, good and bad thoughts. And here, too, the believer has the ability to exercise self-control over those desires, those wants. We can say no to harmful desires and yes to good desires. We can say no to that second piece of chocolate cake that we know we shouldn't have 
we can say yes to others, to good ones. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, this is an example of a good desire. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, 2, As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow by, grow thereby. He also says later on in the same chapter, in verse 11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly desires which war against your soul. So we see that our souls are the arena where we exercise self-control. This is where the fruit of the Spirit given to us in Galatians 5 manifests itself. So how healthy is your soul this morning? What is the state of your soul? It's good to take stock and examine where we're at, look at the mirror of God's word. And I found three terms that describe possible states of our souls. There may be others, I'm sure there are, but we're gonna look at three conditions this morning. A dry soul, a lean soul, and a rich soul. The first condition, the dry soul, is found in, I found in Numbers chapter 11, verses four through six. Numbers 11, verses four through six. This is where they're wandering in the desert and Israelites are complaining about various things and God is dealing with them. But we read this in verse four. Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to an intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? I like that little rhyme, meat to eat. Who will give us meat to eat? Because up until this point, God was feeding them the manna, right? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic, basically when our flesh was satisfied. But now our whole being is dried up. There's nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. It's funny that they would remember those things they were slaves. We, they don't say, we remember when we were making bricks, you know, in the heat of the sun. No, they say, we remember the fish, the cucumbers and the melons. I don't like fish. I don't eat fish. So, and melons and cucumbers, they give me heartburn. And leeks, onions, and garlic, I love all of those things, but they make my breath stink, right? And so it's an odd kind of thing that they remember these things. So in verse 6, we're looking at dry soul. In verse 6, we see that the Israelites referred to themselves as having our whole being dried up. The word whole being is the same Hebrew word for soul. It's nephish. So they possessed a dried soul. And where were they? They were in a desert. That's a fitting picture. And what caused their dry soul? I believe it was that they disregarded the manna and they thought little of it. Now we've just gone through a very dry summer, very little rain. Do you remember the brown lawns, right? They lacked any color. There was very little life in them. And when you walked on the brown grass, it would crunch beneath your feet. 
What was lacking was water, rain, life-giving water. What can make the dry ground healthy? What brings life to dry ground? What can make a hard, dry soul refreshed and vibrant? The water of the word of God. And isn't it interesting that the Bible refers to the word of God as the water of the word in Ephesians chapter 5. Water refreshes, it cleans, it brings dry souls to life. So is your soul a little dry this morning? If you have a dry soul, you need to drink from the one who has the life-giving water, Jesus. He said in John 4, verse 14, But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. We can experience rivers of living water flowing out of our lives. The second condition that I discovered was a lean soul. A lean soul. I found this in Psalm 106. In Psalm 106, verses 13 through 15. And the psalmist is recounting the exodus from Egypt. And he writes these words in verse 13, starting in verse 13. They soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tested God in the desert. And he gave them their request for meat to eat, but sent leanness into their souls. They envied Moses in the camp, Aaron, the saint of the Lord. Now some translations, instead of leanness into their soul, will have the word a wasting disease or a, a wasting. And the idea is the same, a thinning, a impoverishedness, an unhealthy state, okay? Sometimes God gives or allows us to have what we desire to show how poor or empty those desires really are. I have learned that the desire for something is always greater than the satisfaction that desire brings. It's almost like a judgment sometimes. I should say, and I should qualify those desires as unhealthy desires. The good desires God will honor. So this passage in Psalm 106 refers back to Numbers chapter 11, and I would encourage you to spend some time in Numbers chapter 11. It's very in, in, uh, enlightening. So what does a lean soul look like? A lean soul is set on fleshly things, just like the Israelites' desire for the quail. Who will give us meat to eat? God, I'll tell you, he not only gave them meat to eat, but when he caused the quail to descend upon the camp, as far as they could walk in a day, there were quail that way. The same that way, the same that way. Wherever they could go, they could get quail. God was going to give them meat to eat, and he did. And as soon as they ate of the meat, that's when um, things turned bad for them. I would encourage you to read that in Numbers 
chapter 11, verses 31 through 33. And the quail, which was the meat, is a perfect example, a perfect picture of a desire for flesh. They desired flesh, a desire to feed the flesh. So So a lean soul has a mind more occupied with the things of this world. What shall I eat? What shall I wear? What's important to me? It's a spiritual barrenness. I think 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, we won't read that this morning, I encourage you to read it, describes this spiritual barrenness pretty well. Is our flesh the predominant ruler of our wants and desires and our actions? A lean soul has a heart that has grown cold with love for God, for Christ, or his people. A lean soul may not care anymore. This person avoids prayer, the word of God, and his people. And this is some of what a lean soul looks like. The last condition of soul that I'd like to bring your attention to is the rich soul, the prosperous soul, the fruitful or basically the healthy soul. What does this soul look like? Well, the following verses give us a picture of a healthy soul. In Proverbs chapter 13, verse 4. Proverbs 13, 4. The soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing. But the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. That word diligent means constant in effort to accomplish something. Attentive and persistent. The soul of the diligent shall be made rich. In Psalm 1.1, we read these words. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. In John 15, 5, Lord willing, we may get there with Henry's preaching in a few months. We're in chapter 13. I'm saying, Henry, you'll probably have us there after the new year. We'll see. In John 15, 5, Jesus speaks and he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Bears much fruit, for without me you can, be, you can do nothing. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love Joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who are Christ's have, been, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So what's the condition of your soul? Are you dried up due to a lack of life-giving water from the Word? When was the last time you had a refreshing drink 
from God's word? Do you sense a leanness in your soul? Have the things of this world become too much of an attraction to you? Have you been pursuing the quails of this world? Are you feeding your flesh more than your spirit? Or is your soul rich by being diligent in your desire to grow in Christ's likeness? Is it prosperous from being in God's word regularly? Is it bearing much fruit because you're abiding in Christ? I, I pray that the last, the rich soul, the prosperous soul will mark your life as it will, we would all kind of, we go through seasons in our lives just like we experience seasons here. There are seasons of dryness, there's seasons of leanness, and there's seasons of prosperous. Well, I pray that the seasons of dryness and leanness will be less and the seasons of a prosperous soul will be more. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. It's refreshing to us. And I thank you that you have made us this way with a body, soul, and spirit, with mind, emotions, and wills. And I pray, Father God, that all of that would be under your will and under your purposes. And I pray that we would be a people who would be desirous of your word, would spend time in it, would grow in it, would love it, would, would see it. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that as we spend more time, that you would open the eyes of our understanding to the end that you would make us the people of God you desire. For I pray it for your glory and in the name of Jesus, amen.